0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, For the past few months, we as a a church have been reading our way through the New Testament book of Ephesians, uh, thinking about our true identity as Christians. Uh, And I realize there are quite a few visitors here this morning, particularly here sitting at the front, and it's really great to have you with us. Thank you for coming. Along, and so what I want to do is very quickly attempt to bring everyone that's here, including the kids that are with us this morning, up to speed with what is going on before we, we read God's word. Paul, who is an apostle, who's the writer of this letter, uh, he has got to a point in his letter writing at the beginning of chapter four where he's urging his readers and urging us to live lives that are worthy of our calling, to live lives that are worthy of our gospel calling. And so he spent three chapters, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, talking about all the incredible things that God has done for us and that God has done in us in Christ. How he has chosen us and adopted us and forgiven us and redeemed us and drenched us in grace. And so the list goes on, and those who've been tracking this series will know the kind of 16 things that we have identified as our true ID in Christ. But at the start of chapter four, he's now beginning to describe how we should live as a result of our true ID. And so he writes, and, and if you're ever wondering how Christians should be characterized, If you're ever wondering how should a Christian be identified and known, then here's a pretty good reference point. Here's a neat description. Because what Paul urges us to do in order to live lives that are worthy of our gospel calling is this. He says, be completely humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love, Plus, maintain the unity and make every effort to do so. So, here's the summary. Oh, Andrew, if you click on to the next one for me. Here's the summary of what it means to live the life humility, gentleness, patience, love, and unity. That's what it means to live an authentic, Christian, gospel worthy life. Paul then goes on, and if you're here last week in verses four to six, to explain why the last on that list, why unity is so important, why it matters so much. He says this, next one, Andrew, please. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, seven ones. And we looked at each of those last week. Here is the basis of Christian unity. Here is the reason, or here are seven reasons why unity within churches and between churches is so vital. And on the kind of flip side, disunity and division or discord, if those exist, then what happens is it confuses the reality of there being one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God. So unity, says Paul, is really, really important if we are gonna live lives worthy of the gospel. And so this morning, we're gonna pick up from where we left off, which is at verse seven, where Paul continues to speak about unity and he also speaks about maturity. And as we always do here at Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's words. The words will be in the screen if, if you don't have a Bible with you or you have it on a device. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And that's why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions he who ascended is the very one who ascended higher or he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, and it grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Grab a seat. Let me, uh, can I have the next one, Andrew? Let me ask you a question. What is your gift? I want you to think about this for a moment. If you've been chosen, if you've been adopted, if you've been accepted, if you've been redeemed, if you've been forgiven, all those things, if you're a child of God, if you belong to God because of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a saint, if you're a believer, whatever term you want to use. Let me ask you, what is your Your gift? What is your gifting and how are you using it to play your part in the body, in the church? How are you using it to serve, to do a work of service? Now, that's one of those questions that creates a certain degree of nervous tension because lots of people don't think they have a gift. Some of you are maybe sitting here going, I don't know if I could really answer that. What is my gift? Don't know if I have a gift or gifts. Plus, even if I do have, it's nowhere near as good or as useful as other people's gifts. And anyway, what gifts are we talking about? What gifts are we referring to? The person who leads, the person who attempts to preach, the person who teaches, the person who plays an instrument, the person who's up front. Yes, they're gifted. But what about the person who's sitting next door right now holding, nursing a baby in order that a mum and dad can be here in this service? Are they gifted in the same way? Well, let's try to tease this out a little. In verse seven, Paul writes, Paul says, next one, Andrew. In verse seven, Paul says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. So let's break this down. It says there, to each one, therefore every single believer, every single saint, every single Christian without exception has been given some grace. Now, Paul is not referring here to saving grace. Paul's not referring here to the unconditional extravagant grace of God that is expressed in Jesus at the cross that enables us to be rescued and to reestablish the relationship with God that every single one of us were created to enjoy. He's already talked about that. He's already dealt with that in the previous chapters. In chapter one, he's talked about how God has lavished on us the riches of his grace. He's talked about in chapter two about how we all have been saved by grace. So in other words, that's sorted, that's dealt with in terms of our true ID. Here in chapter four, as Paul talks about living a life worthy of your gospel calling, he's talking about grace gifts, spiritual gifts that have been given by Jesus to each one of us to enrich the life of others and in order to serve the body of Christ locally and beyond. We don't deserve these gifts. They're given without merit. That's why they're referred to as grace gifts. We don't deserve them. So in verse eight, Paul emphasizes that the risen Christ who ascended on high has given gifts to his people, to the church. Now, at this point, and those of you who who know your Bibles well will know that Paul, or if you have a reference Bible, you'll know that at this point, Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, and I fully appreciate that there are certain aspects of what Paul says in those quotes that are quite intricate and difficult to fully comprehend, but at the very least, he's making the point that Jesus has entrusted us with gifts for service and ministry. That's at the very least what he's saying. We're all gifted. And elsewhere in, in Paul's writings and in the remainder of the New Testament, we see this, this comes up time and time again. This is not an isolated incident. So here on the screen, you will see that in Romans twelve six, it says, we have different gifts. We all have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Not a few, not a select number to each of us. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, we read, all these are the work of the one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. And then in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So God has given grace grace gifts to all believers, period. Which means that none of us should sit here this morning entertaining any thoughts of inadequacy or comparing ourselves and deciding, do you know something? I'm not as good as that person. I'm not as gifted as that person. The truth is, the fact is, we all have something to contribute. And in fact, the church, this church will be weaker if we do not offer and practice our God-given gift and service and ministry. There is no such thing as an ungifted believer. No such thing, according to the New Testament. Now, the gifts referred to in the New Testament are varied and wide-ranging. And as Paul himself says, whenever he's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, there are different kinds of gifts. Some of those gifts are specific. Some of them are quite broad. They're kind of like broad categories. And so if you read Romans 12, and many of you know this, if you read Romans 12, or you read 1 Corinthians 12, or you read 1 Peter 4, you'll come across gifts of things like hospitality, wisdom, words of knowledge, discernment, Encouragement, the gift of giving, the gift of generosity, the gift of administration, the gift of serving generally, etc., etc. And if you look at all those lists, and none of them are exhaustive, if you look at all those lists, there are over 20 gifts. Over, and then some. And although a few of them are debatable, and they are controversial, and it's the few gifts that tend to hijack all the conversations, I do not want us to get distracted from the key issue this morning. The key issue is that each one of us, without exception, has been gifted, not for our own personal benefit or satisfaction, but to serve and to play our essential part in building up the body of Christ, which is the church. And again, going back to verse 1, this is what it means to live a life worthy of your calling where you know what your gift is and your gifts are, and you're using them to serve and to build up the body of Christ. So back to our specific text, Ephesians 4, because Paul then goes on in this letter and at this point to explain how Jesus has given certain gifts and gifted people to his church. Why? To equip the people of God, in order that they can do their works of service. So what does Jesus say? Next slide, please, Andrew. What does Jesus say? Or what does Paul say? Jesus gives apostles, small a, prophets, evangelists, pastors, stroke shepherds, teachers, five types, five categories of people that have been gifted to the church by Jesus to equip others to serve. Now, again, some of you are there already. Unfortunately, some people immediately get distracted about certain categories. So, are are the first two apostles and prophets? Hmm. Are are they not a reference to the initial capital A, apostles, who witnessed, who saw, who encountered the risen Christ? And uh, prophets, are those not the original first century prophets that are referred to in chapter two, whenever Jesus is, or whenever Paul's talking about Jesus being the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets? Is that not what those are about? So, Actually, those two are redundant now. Those are irrelevant now, but they're no longer given. But evangelists, pastors, and teachers, we're still given those. And I kind of hope we are, else I'm out of a job, but that's beside the point. But this is not the time, and I know in a sense I'm ducking a lot here, but it's the first Sunday in July. Uh, this is not the time nor the context to get into a massive discussion about each category. Because what that, that again does is it, it runs the risk of dragging us off course, and this happens so often. But part of my understanding of a small apostle, part of the definition of that is one sent on a mission. It's a pioneer, it's a trailblazer, it's those who venture into new territory. Part of the definition of a prophet are those who communicate and speak God's word into people's lives at the right time and in the right context and the right place. An evangelist are those who share the good news of Jesus, those who bring people to Christ. A pastor, that's those who are meant to shepherd and care for others. A teacher are those who are meant to instruct and nurture the people of God in the faith by communicating and teaching and sharing God's word. And for me, we need all of the above in order to equip us to serve. Because people equipped and serving is a key litmus test of a healthy church. People equipped and serving is evidence of a healthy church where people don't just come to consume and to receive, but they come to give. They come to minister to each other. They use their God-given gifts to help and to perform acts of service, from nursing babies in creche to leading us in our sung worship here each Sunday, from setting up this hall, setting up the PA system, to administrating the affairs of this church. And we could go on and we could go on, and when that is happening, when the whole church is serving and each one is playing their part. Paul says, do you know what happens when that happens? Two things. The first is the body is built up. And, and I find this really interesting. This is important to get. It's not the apostles, it's not the prophets, it's not the evangelists, it's not the pastors, it's not the teachers that build up the church. According to Paul here, their role, their job, their input is to equip God's people and then it is God's people's works of service that builds up the church. Did you see that? The whole congregation are therefore ministers. Whole congregation are therefore ministers that Jesus employs to build up his body. And you see, for us, whatever I am, but if I am not equipping you, if I am not teaching you, if others are not speaking God's word into your life, if others are not sharing Jesus, and then you are not serving, and you're not using your gift and ability and your gift to minister to others, then the body of Christ in this local context at Windsor Baptist is gonna be weaker as a result So here's my question again. What is your gift? What is your gifting? And how are you using it to serve? Are you being equipped to serve? So the first result, the body's built up. Second result, says Paul, if everyone plays their part, is maturity. The next slide, please, Andrew. Maturity. Maturity. And in verse 13, Paul appears, or at least I want to suggest he does, to describe what maturity looks like. Well, what does it look like to be a maturing, growing church? Not growing numerically, that's not what it's about, but growing in depth and discipleship. What does that look like? Paul identifies three things. Next slide, Andrew. There's unity in the faith, says Paul. There's no disunity, there's no division. A mature church is united as one and is making every effort to maintain that. That's an indicator of a mature church. There's no disunity. There's no discord, there's no division. People are completely humble and gentle and patient and they bear with one another in love. Secondly, says Paul, There is unity in the knowledge of Jesus. Together, we are getting to know Jesus better. Some of you might remember that back in chapter one, Paul prayed that the saints would come to know God the Father better. Well, here, he's identifying a united, growing knowledge of Jesus as a sign of maturity. That as we serve, as we are equipped to serve, as we serve, as we perform works of service, then we are helping each other to get to know Jesus better. It's a sign of maturity. And thirdly, thirdly and let, let me put this simply, there is increasing Christ-likeness that as we're equipped and as we serve, then we reflect Jesus more clearly and accurately in our church and through our church. That's what it means attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. A maturing church is increasingly Christlike. And so here's the question I have for us as Windsor Baptists. How are we doing? How are we doing? Is there unity here? Is there a growing knowledge of Jesus here? Is there a correct reflection of Jesus here in us and through us? And as Paul talks about maturity... He says, do you know something? See, if you do become mature, it'll save you from something. It'll save you from becoming like a bunch of infants who are far too easily swayed by all kinds of nonsense and distorted teaching and clever schemes and make no mistake about it, they're out there and they're trying to wreak havoc with our growth and our godliness. Unless we're mature, unless we're united, unless we're growing together in our knowledge of Jesus, and unless there is increasing Christ-likeness in our church and through our church, then we're at, be, we're at risk of being blown all over the place. And so as Paul finishes this section, next one, please. Andy. He returns to the image of Christ, the church as a body which is growing in a to Look at the very last line. As each part does its work, This is the key. As each part does its work, there is what unlocks a healthy church. Each gifted part playing its part, serving and ministering. You're the body of Christ. We're all a part of it. And in the next slide, Andrew, just to finish says don't don't miss the importance of love and all this. Speak the truth to one another, but do it in love. Do it in love. And we build ourselves up in love. You see, without love, what happens in the church is rivalry and comparison enters in. And we start looking around and we comparing our, we compare ourselves to others. And feelings of inferiority or superiority raise their ugly heads. Without love We begin to dismantle as opposed to build. And without love, we pull apart instead of maintaining unity. And so just to finish, next slide. And I know I've tried to cover a lot, maybe too much. But in a nutshell, here's what I've been trying to say. Please seek to be equipped to serve. Please be teachable. Secondly, please know and use your God-given grace gift to serve others. Three, let's all play our part in building up the body of Christ in this place and beyond. Four, let's become mature together. A few weeks ago, Junior Church Sunday, Mark informed us that there are over 200 people playing their part here at present. 200 plus body parts serving at Windsor. I invite and I encourage you to join in if this is your church. Or go from here and use your grace gift in your church to serve the body of Christ there. May God help.